<clears throat> Hello, Mr. Roderick. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm good. My, uh, my system here is a little bit louder than normal, but that uh, is because yesterday I was <clears throat> recording some music here on this same system, and I must have jiggled the juggled a knob. Yeah. Yeah. I can just talk real quiet if that's... No, I think I'm going <clears> to... <throat> here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clear my throat a few times. <clears throat> and then I'm going to just lower the volume here on this little volume slider. Ah, that's nice. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Better. That's the good stuff right there. So I don't know if you just... Uh, when you started your day, if you just started your day, but I'm kind of bummed out. You heard about Prince, right? Well, yeah, and in fact, one of the reasons I was late getting here was I was walking out of the house. You know, it's 90 degrees in Seattle. Oh, wow. I was walking out of the house in an orange linen shirt. I found out about Prince. And to change it for purple. I I went back in and got on a purple shirt. Yeah. Yeah. So it took me an extra little while, and then, of course, I had to look at, I had to look at some of the initial you know this is the crazy thing about twitter now right you scroll back to the first mention because twitter is becoming both a news source and also like a historical timeline in a strange way yeah what was the who was the first person to mention something the first person to say oh no and uh i think it was kepley in my at kepley in my uh timeline And then from there, you get all the people that are like, you know, when Kurt Cobain died, we heard about it on the radio. Right. And it was, it was kind of similar to the way this unfolded. Like there's a body found at the Kurt Cobain estate. Right. And you're like, what does that mean? But it was, you know, it was several hours of listening to updates on the, on the alternative rock station, you know, the, the coroner has pulled up out in front of the Cobain estate. Right. No word yet on whether or not it's a, you know, it's a plumber or, or what, you know, and you're just like, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please don't let it be Kurt Cobain. But uh, this happened pretty fast. It was pretty clear. It was Prince right away. We still, we, as of the time of this recording, we still don't know uh, exactly why he died yet or what, what was wrong the last thing anyone heard was that he had like he had was dealing with the flu mm-hmm. and then went on to perform a show and then it, and that's it yeah i've had a really bad flu uh you know two things about prince one is he's the exact same age as madonna really and both prince and madonna were 10 years older than me because, you know, I was very impressionable 14-year-old when they were 24-year-olds. All right. And, um, and so I've followed both of them, as we all have. <laughs> I'm not the only. It's not remarkable that I've been following the careers of Prince and Madonna. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I've, felt, I've always felt a closeness and a kinship with them. And that's not special either. We've all felt a closeness and kinship with, right. with Prince and Madonna. I, you know, there's, what can I say? <clears throat> what can I say other than I guess two things. One is that we think of Prince as a fun, funky, sexy prankster or like funster. Sure. Gender fluid 
uh, originate uh, original gangster. But, you know, his music was incredibly sad often. And that's a thing that we forget. I don't think we forget, but we just neglect when we eulogize him and say like, what a funky, you know, funkmeister. It's like the thing that connected his music to us all was that he was like profoundly emotional and hurt, hurt and sad and mournful, you know, right. and that's, that's in almost everything he does. That isn't like just purely a like humping song. And even the humping songs, a lot of them have a thread of like, Oh God. Oh, so hard. Uh, but you know, he, he's the rare individual who, when he first came out, it was so, it was so apparent that he was borrowing so heavily from Hendrix. At least his first appearance in my life, he looked like like, physically in every way. Right. I mean, he was, he was playing the guitar like Hendrix. He was, he was dressing like him. He was, he was respecting him and emulating him. And that seemed, uh, appropriate. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of white people at that point appropriating Hendrix all day. And Prince was kind of, you know, uh, like black music, black culture had kind of moved on from Hendrix and blues guitar for the most part. But he was sort of revitalizing that image and that vibe. But I never would have thought I, I never could have imagined that I would have said that Prince would in, in the end be more, maybe way more influential than Hendrix, you know, just in terms of he. Oh yeah, way I think way more. It's well, I mean, you know, the only reason I say that, the only reason I even doubt it is that Hendrix has been has been so influential and lionized in my generation as like the ultimate sort of uh, pioneer. But when you think about this, when you think about the impact that Prince has had, and across such a wide spectrum of what we think of as culture. Way, way more, right? Way more influential in the long term. Um, and it's so rare to, for a person, because Stevie Ray Vaughan took so much from Hendrix and was so influenced by him, but never, never, and I mean, he died young, but like didn't surpass his mentor in any way. Yeah. He was a little faster. He was a little bit, you know, he put some Texas swing on it and stuff but it's not like he hard to know what Stevie Ray Vaughan would be doing now whether he would be on that on that chicken picking circuit of of uh <laughs> Kenny Kenny Wayne and so forth who right. are just out playing they're playing big halls Steve Vai playing big halls but it's just guitar wankery or whether they whether Stevie Ray would have continued to push the envelope and Stevie Ray is the connection to Bowie and I've brought it all back around nice Prince Bowie. Why? You know, is, why is it that we we lose like people in in little groups? It's like they always say it's like groups of threes, you know? Yeah. Well, like, that's John, weird. John Sarkusa would have a good answer for this because it's uh, you know it's evolution. No, it's not. It's just <laughs> it's just it's just coincidence. But it does seem like, I mean, fifty eight years old is. Is just too young to die, except that I just went through a whole spate 
of people in their mid forties who were part of my musical community, just all dying all at once and not, you know, when I was in my twenties and a bunch of people died, it was all because they were on drugs or died of drugs. Yeah. But now I'm, I've just crossed that threshold where I lost a handful of friends and they all died because of nature or because of, because people die not of old age, but just of just died because it comes in waves. Right. And I mean, this is one of the crazy things about my, about watching my dad get older. Everybody he knew had died except for a small handful of people Hmm. by the time that he died. And that's gotta be very, it's gotta be, I mean, I can only imagine. Right. And I will, and I will hopefully live that long. But yeah, 58. What is that? 58 and presumably like incredibly fit and incredibly full of life. It's right. not like Prince sat down in a chair and was like, uh, it's, I've got nothing left to live for. <laughs> I don't know, Dan. I, I, it's hard for me to mourn people with a lot of reverence uh, publicly. You know, there's so many people right now even now who are who are publicly bawling about prince still yeah. bawling about bowie and right you know like i i welled up with emotion this morning but when when we're talking about prince or bowie out in the world all you can do is like be just remember how hilarious they and wonderful they were you right. know right how do you be i mean how do you be sad it's like We'll never know what Prince would have done, so I can't really mourn that because it's because he might have just <laughs> his next record may have been shit reggae, and he might have just started calling himself Snoop Lion, and <laughs> right. you know, like it could have all gone south. We did, we can never know what Prince had in store, so you can't really cry for it. We would like to say thank you very much to Mac Weldon. As the saying goes, Mac Weldon is uh, better than whatever you're wearing right now. Unless, I guess, I, I guess that's only true if you're not already wearing the Mac Weldon stuff. They make great stuff. It's Mac, M-A-C-K, Weldon, W-E-L-D-O-N, MacWeldon.com. And they believe in smart design, premium fabric, simple shopping, and uh, John enjoys their underwear, the silver underwear. They actually weave silver into into the clothing that they make and they they keep it simple. They make underwear, they make socks, they make shirts, they make undershirts. And I they also make hoodies and sweatpants. But like that's it. Like they're not they're not introducing a line of ties. They don't also make like dress shirts and sport coats and now a new line of sneakers. They just make this stuff that pretty much all guys need. And they do it in a way that it, they, they make them super comfortable. They're naturally antimicrobial, which means that they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable. That's a critical to them. And I, I love this stuff. John loves it too. And we're not trading underwear. But you know what? We could because they antimicrobial. I suppose we could do that. Well, here's the deal. If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they send you a refund. No questions asked. So it's a great way to just go and try it out. And here's how you do it. You go to MacWeldon.com and you're going to get 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK. ROADWORK. So go check them out. Thanks very much to MacWeldon. MacWeldon.com. Promo code is ROADWORK.
Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen the 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 Prince performance at the at the uh, celebration for George Harrison? No, I don't think so. Let me recommend that everybody right now pause this program and go uh, find this clip. So it's a George Harrison tribute. I'll put it into the show notes. I found it right right here. This is the yeah. one where Prince, it says Prince, Tom Petty, Steve Winwin, Jeff Lynn, and others, while my guitar gently weeps. That? That's right. All right. Oh, oh it is truly a thing of, of joy. Uh, because, I mean, Tom Petty is a wonderful musician and a hero of mine, but he falls somewhat into that category of self-seriousness. You know, you don't think of Tom Petty as having a, like an incredible sense of humor about himself, for instance, right? Right, right. Tom Petty doesn't ever come out in the world and like, and is clearly mocking the image of Tom Petty. He's pretty, pretty self, self-aware, self-serious guy. And that's right. not to say he doesn't have a sense of humor or that he doesn't seem fun, but he's just, he's like, I'm Tom Petty. Like and, kind of yeah, he's like he's a big deal. He knows he's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> you he's know? you know, and he's like he's he's wearing a top hat. If you're wearing a top hat, even one covered with dust, yeah, um, you know, you kind of gotta you're gonna rep that. You don't want to be out in a top hat like, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> George Harrison was one of those unusual people who, like George, how do you say this? In the right way. George did not strike me as necessarily the smartest Beatle. Right? I think in terms of smartness, when you rank the Beatles, and it's always wonderful to rank the Beatles, right? Which one do you think got more tail? <laughs> right. Which which Beatle put more pepper on his spaghetti sauce? <laughs> and it's and you do it. You do it all the time. We did it on the Joko Cruise this year. Which Beatle is the best singer, right? Mm. And And at a certain level, you can say... In some ways, maybe John is the worst singer, but then John Flansburg jumped up and said, I protest. John Lennon is the maybe one of the greatest singers of all time. And both things are true. Right. John Lennon maybe was the worst singer in the Beatles and also one of, if not the greatest pop singer of all time. Right. Just in terms of like his passion and his what what he contributed to the world. So when you rank the Beatles according to what that what your per, your perception of their intelligence. Right. I think you've you've got to put John first if only because I always identify cynicism as a sign of intelligence. And I may be wrong about sure, that. Sure. Maybe Paul it, I, no, there's just no way that Paul is smarter than John. Paul is brilliant. <laughs> Maybe Paul is even more brilliant than John in terms of just in the lightning of inspiration. But no, Paul is Paul is a dingling by comparison to John. And th- I'm not saying John is the is the smartest pop star, <laughs> but he's the smartest Beatle. And then Paul, and then whew, probably. I mean, it's a tough. I mean, Ringo. Yeah, Ringo's probably last, but yeah, so no, then he's jo- got to be last. Then George is no. There. No They're one not- will argue with you that Ringo. But I mean, be but last you know, time. Ringo lived a charmed life. Like uh, Ringo's life story is truly inspiring. So, jo- but you know, you have to put George in that category where he just—I mean, the Hare Krishna thing really puts you. It's really tough to be a Hare Krishna and also be 
considered one of the smarter beetles. Sure. Right. The two, those Venn diagrams hardly overlap at all. But, but George had a sense of himself where there, where he allowed a little bit of, there was some, there was some humor in George that was subtle, but like George could laugh. George could, George could think he could speak. He, he, he could appreciate that he was ridiculous, maybe a little bit in a way that Paul cannot. Sure. Paul has never recognized that he is ridiculous. He fights it all the time. He wants us all to turn our heads a little bit and not acknowledge how ridiculous he is. He's Paul is constantly, he's looking at the encyclopedia and wondering what the final entry is going to be. He doesn't care about anything else. But so at George's funeral, You've got these guys. I think Jeff Lynn has probably got a great sense of humor. I think Jeff Lynn is probably really smart, but he's he's always wearing those sunglasses. You can't tell what's going on. Right. But they're up there and they're like eulogizing George. And while my guitar gently weeps has to be one of the most, you know, kind of morbid, almost morose songs to play at, at a, at a uh, funeral. Yeah. And, but they're doing a very dutiful job. George's son is up there, just happy to be there, happy to be alive. They're strumming it. It's beautiful. It really is. It's a, it's a wonderful tribute. And then from the wings, here comes Prince. And it's a valid question at that moment, like, what's Prince doing here? Sure. Why isn't Clapton here, first of all? <laughs> right. What the fuck did Clapton have to do that day? <laughs> Not that I'm looking forward to seeing Clapton come out of the wings. Right. Like if Clapton had come out of the wings, it would have been it would have been like uh, just some it would have been like the toilets overflowed and some brown water came out on the stage. And I hate to say that. No, I don't mean that Clapton is toilet water, but it would have just been like, oh, here he is. Here's Clapton. That's your slow hand uh, guitar impression. <laughs> Pretending. Uh, but, but so here comes prince and you go prince huh i'm glad to see prince now and then you think about it for a second it's like oh right the beatles huge influence on prince right. i'm sure that of the beatles maybe george harrison i mean you can absolutely draw a through line from george harrison to prince without any trouble at all understand why he's there be grateful that he's there but he's not part of that community of people that are wearing dusty top hats <laughs> or or you know or playing music that is too that's too reverent right prince has a sense of humor about himself about everything and he's also the most self-serious person you ever saw in the world and oh that's, god yes that's what's so crazy about him, right? How can he take himself so seriously such that he will like walk into a club and walk into a club after a show that he played for five hours and say to the club owner, like you have to turn all the water faucets off or whatever, you know, he would just say crazy things. I just want, you know, I want you to take all the light bulbs out of the bathrooms. It's like, Oh, okay. Prince wants us to, and I don't know who knows whether he's doing it just as, as a constant, Andy Kaufman routine? <laughs> you don't think so. You think that he's just really bananas. But me, but so 
you know, Prince has got this otherworldly vibe, but he walks out and he's already smirking. You're just like, what's Prince smirking about? Right. What like, does he know? What does he know? Yeah. Here he is at George Harrison's funeral. And I'm very glad to see him walk on stage. I don't know what's about to happen. And why the fuck is he smirking? Mm-hmm. And so he's got his guitar on. Um, and it's his, it's his famous guitar. He has honored George Harrison by bringing his Telecaster with the leopard print. I think I'm remembering this right with the yeah. leopard print uh, pick card. Which when when he brings that guitar out, I always feel like something that it, that means something to him, right? Yeah. He'll play that that you know that glyph guitar. He'll play the the white one that looks like a drop of semen. Mm-hmm. He'll he'll play a lot of guitars, but when the Telecaster comes out, it's like okay, now we're and I and I believe it's the same one. I don't think he would duplicate that and have separate ones you know i feel like he brings that out it's an exclamation point and he then they start to play or he you know he's he's joining in the song already in progress and then i won't spoil it for you but he just takes uh he just takes over and yeah and takes, I'm, I'm watching the video right now in on mute while you're describing it kind of in yeah. sync with you describing it uh-huh, sort of uh-huh. like the you know, Pink Floyd and uh, Wizard of Oz uh, thing you can do. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just as you're describing it. And I realize now I have I have seen this, but it was, this was like 2011, 2012? I think maybe, I don't know, even earlier, I, I, whenever George died, which yeah. was, now it seems like, I mean, 2004. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just had to look that up. Yeah, that. I mean, that's the thing. Anymore, I say, when was that? Two, three years ago? And yeah. it's like, it was no, no, 2004. It was, it was 12 years ago. <laughs> the kids that have just graduated from college were 11 years old. Right. right. Oh, oh, interesting. Um, but not only does he take it over, but he injects a kind of, I mean, all of a sudden it is more reverent. The song is renewed. Um, if you look at Donnie, and I think his name is Donnie, D-H-A-N-I, Harrison, George's son, he is like, he is, his face is so lit up. He's so thrilled by what's happening because all of a sudden the song is alive again. This is not a funeral march. This is, this music has become as relevant as any music ever. And Prince is just, and Prince is just like, fuck you guys also at the same time. He's, he's. He's prowling up and down the stage. He is just throwing it both at the crowd and at the other musicians. Like, come on, you guys. And and he plays an inspired, inspired guitar. And at a certain point, he turns around. He's soloing in full flight. He turns around and you can see, you can't see Prince's face. You just see the back of his head. But you see... He makes eye contact with Tom Petty. He's turned. He's gone across the front of the stage. He's standing now in front of Tom Petty and he makes eye contact with him. And you see a look go across Tom Petty's face. And it's just there just so briefly. And it is a look and it's been described, you know, when people are trying to make everything fine. Right. Which right. is a, which is a big impulse in people. Now everything's fine. Everything's fine. 
uh, it's been described as like, oh, Tom Petty's jaw dropped at Prince's amazing guitar part, or Tom Petty and Prince shared a moment where they you know made eye contact on the stage. But in fact, Tom Petty's face registers, fuck you, mm. fuck you. <laughs> and if you can't see that, maybe you don't know musicians very well, or I don't know, maybe you just don't know about people, or maybe you're trying to pretend that that's not what Tom Petty well, was I saying. I think you have a very different like line of insight than than most people do on this. I mean, oh, what's yeah. obvious to you maybe isn't to to me or other people. Well, because Tom Petty up until that moment had been leading this wonderful tribute concert to his close friend right. and mentor George Harrison, and Prince came out on stage and just set the just burned the house down. <laughs> right, and also was doing a better job of eulogizing George. Right. And you can, and, and watching Donnie Harrison be so thrilled, you get a sense that if George were there, he would also be thrilled because it was, because it was thrilling. Yeah. It was just musically thrilling. And, and all of the swagger that Prince brought, all of the, all of the like fuck you attitude was not what George Harrison stood for. Right. George Harrison never walked out on stage with, with that kind of, uh, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Like George would come out on stage kind of covered in a sort of self-effacing shyness. That was his signature. Those guys, you know, that sort of Wilbury's crew was all about, all about a collective notion of like, we're just musicians. Right. Like the whole sense of the Wilburys was like, Hey, <laughs> this band has Dylan in it. But he's just one of the guys. Right. And then, and you know, it's got a Beatle. It's got Dylan. It's got Roy Orbison. Tom Petty, one of the, one of the biggest rock stars in the world, is the junior member of this group. <laughs> but we're just, uh, we're just some good old boys just, uh, just picking some guitars, right? There's no showboating. There's no showboating. And if you think about, think about the super group of any era that would contain Prince. It's like Prince on guitar and right. and what? Right. I mean, maybe Bowie, frankly. Maybe Bowie and Prince and and who else is in that band? I mean, there's no there it's there's no sense of Prince being a collaborator like that, right? Yeah. He's a collaborator in the sense that he wrote songs for a lot of artists, he mentored a lot of artists. Anyway, so I have watched that George Harrison while my guitar gently weeps video a thousand times. And every time I laugh, every time I moved, um, and, and there are, there are hundreds of Prince performances like that where you watch it and you're just like, ah, what a singular person who, who has so much, he, no one could be that confident. So that expression of confidence is an expression of something else. Right, an expression of having converted, having converted insecurity into a, a sort of lightsaber. Because I don't think I don't think you can be that good of a musician and also be that confident at the same time. Frankly, in order to learn music that well and to feel it that passionately, you have to also be scared and sad at yeah, a certain level yeah. 
Wow. Right? You're not, if you're that confident, you just go and be a water skier. You know, like if you think you're that hot shit, you just go you'd be an investment banker. That's where those people end up. Those people are monsters. But by the time Prince was 18, he could play every instrument. And, and you see it in Purple Rain, right? His 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 um, his origin story is pretty harsh. Yeah. So I didn't mean to to just uh, it's heavy dude. That's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And. You know, he played in Seattle now several years ago, not as long ago as 2004, but sometime in 2011, he came and played two club shows here uh, in a 1,200 person venue. And it was one of those things where he kind of didn't, it was barely announced maybe. No, I guess it was announced. But as you can imagine, he doesn't usually play an announced, I mean, he does do a thing where after his big stadium concert, he goes and plays a show at a club. Like that's not uncommon for him. Mm-hmm. And that's part of his generosity and part of his, uh, again, like a, this, this feeling of, well, in the same way that Bowie, his life was kind of a gift to people. He recognized his role as, as a, I hate to say shaman because I reserve that word only to talk about Jim Morrison mm. and, and only to, to disparage Jim Morrison. <laughs> that, we should talk about that too. <laughs> but you know, Bowie was a part of a priestly class and, and so was Prince and so is Madonna. You know, they just, they, they get a lot out of it. Right. But they're also giving, giving, giving. <clears throat> and, uh, so Prince is playing the show and it's just the hottest ticket in town. Everybody wants to be there. And he comes out on stage and you're just like, holy shit, it's Prince, you know, but he's done a thing where he brought his stadium show to this 1200 person club. He's got a big light show, but more importantly, he's got a lot of amplifiers. And he's got an all-female band. And, you know, Prince was truly a pioneer in, in that sense of having women in his band that were not there as eye candy. And that's not to say that they weren't sexy, but they were not there um, to play a, uh, a token instrument and dance around. Like, they were hot shit musicians, and they were his band. And there was hardly any there was not a reference to them in the sense of like, check out my girl band. Right. It was like, this band is these band, these musicians are killer and, and you better hold on. Right. And he'd been doing that all the way in the eighties. And you know, even through the, even through the nineties, even to now, there's a kind of, it's, it's unusual to see a band of dudes who have, a female musician in a, in a spotlighted position. Uh, there are, you know, there are a lot of female musicians who make that space for themselves, but you know, you don't see, you don't see a metal band with a girl lead guitarist, no, right? No, but Prince absolutely like scoured the world for the best musicians. And so he comes to this Seattle show. His band is all women. They're, they're extraordinary players, but, 
the show is too loud and I, and I hate to reduce it to that simple thing, but like too loud. It's 1200 person club. And I, I'm talking to the staff of the bar and they're like, you know, he mixed the show himself. I was, t- cause I was talking to the front of house guy yeah, and he's like, Prince came out with an iPad and mixed the band himself during soundcheck. <laughs> this is exactly how he wants it. But it was too loud. And if you go to a, the, a My Bloody Valentine show, a, a part of what their music, a part of the sound of their music, a part of their whole show is just like, this is just too loud. It's That's what it's going to be. Yeah, It's going to rip your face off. And that's, whether that is a good creative choice or a bad creative choice, it is the one we've made our whole career. But Prince is making pop music and blues music and soul music. And the loudness was... It, it was it was incongruous. It didn't serve the music. Certainly didn't serve anyone in the club. And so he blisters through this set where you're just like, ah, it's taking the moisture off of my eyeballs. <laughs> and I was I was writing, and this is coming this is coming from you, and you're not an especially sound averse. No, person make, either. make make a show loud, right? Yeah. But this this was he had just he just approached this wrong. This was not a stadium show nor a rehearsal for a stadium show. This was a club show. And if Prince had come out in I mean honestly, if he had come out in blue jeans, if he had come out in his bathrobe, yeah, and just played music with this incredible band that's all any of us wanted, right? We didn't want any show. We didn't need any light show. And and it's Prince, right? So he can do what he wants. It's it's not like he owes us anything. But the show was the show was too loud and it was too flashy. And I was writing for the Seattle Weekly at the time. And so he was playing again the next night. And I said, "I'm I'm going to reserve comment on this. I'm going to go to the show the next night." see what the hell, you know, maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. Went to the show the next night. I got there early. I walked around the room. I looked at his pedal board and his gear. I, you know, I got us, I got a sense before doors of what the room. And I know this club, like I know it. I know every nail in the floor of this club. (laughs) Right. So I'm walking around having played it a hundred times, knowing every nook and cranny, like, okay, Prince is basically in my space here. And, and, and yet if Prince is in the space, it's Prince's space. And so let me just get my head around this. And I'm sure all the, you know, the, the, uh, the sound staff of this bar was also having this experience like, okay, this is my mixing board, but now it's Prince's mixing board. (laughs) And I'm just going to stand here and see what happened. Mm -hmm. But he came out and it was the same thing. Just, just too loud, excruciatingly loud. And too loud to enjoy, frankly. And so I had the unique experience of writing a bad review of a print show. Wow. I wrote this article in Seattle Weekly where I was like, all I wanted to do was see Prince from 10 feet away. I did see that. But he made this unusual choice, I think unusual, given his, his knowledge of the world. He knows the difference. He knows a 500 person club. He knows a 1200 person club, like the first Avenue theater in 
Minneapolis is where he he made his bones. Right. And this club in Seattle is the same, same type of place. He knows what he's doing. Why did he do this? How, how could he have misjudged this space and this event? Uh, but there it is. Like, he did. And kind of like when I saw his stadium show and he closed with a medley of his greatest hits from the 80s. Where it's like, yeah, everybody here came here to hear Purple Rain and you played a minute and a half of it Hmm. as part of a medley. That seems like a weird choice, too, although I get it, right? It's like when R.E.M. plays and they play two songs from their from the seven records that they made that are amazing. (laughs) And then they play eight songs from their new record, which is sort of like a it's like a pot of cold macaroni. You go, okay, I get it. You guys, you know, you're. You're, you want us to hear your new stuff and you don't want to be, you don't want to play South Central Rain the rest of your careers. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, South Central Rain is better than anything on your new record just from a musical standpoint. But so, you know, Prince was making choices. He was always making choices. He wanted the, he wanted the, all the light bulbs taken out of the bathroom for some reason. I'm just making that up, but I could, I, I'm sure he's done crazier things. Sure. But I, I came out of this thing because I, I've seen Paul Simon play in that same space after having seen his stadium concert the night before. Right. And the stadium concert was a total limp noodle. It was just like, here's Paul Simon with a band of 14 guys. A lot of them have played with him since Graceland. Right. They're playing in an enormous cavern full of people in late middle age. Uh, and who want to hear diamonds on the soles of his shoes. And it was just like, yeah, this is, I mean, he's spectacular. He's a hero of mine. His band is amazing, but it's like, uh, this, this is like watching a television show. But then the following night he came into this same room and I'm talking about the show box in Seattle, the show box theater, which is one of the great clubs of anywhere. Paul Simon came in and he played the exact same set that he had played the night before in the stadium. But in that small space, it was radically transformed Mm. and, and like a life changing musical experience. Paul Simon went to the very front of the stage, his toes hanging off the edge of the stage and played this on the band too. like they could hear each other, right? They could hear each other in the room. They weren't listening to each other through earphones. They could feel each other and they played together and the music lifted the roof off the place. And I happened that show to be standing next to Paul Simon's manager. And I, I said, you know, when was the last time that Paul played in a space this size? Like I, thought about it for a second he's a famous show business personage himself and mm-hmm. he was like 1966 oh, wow. maybe and i was like okay all right this is a historic show anyway i so prince was complicated and i had a complicated relationship with him i wrote this bad review of the show and i got so many angry letters but you know i'm used to getting angry letters but people that just couldn't believe that I would say a bad word about Prince. And it was like, look, this was a bad show. I mean, it was like he played amazing, but I couldn't, I almost couldn't tell. 
because he was burning the hair off of my ears. Right. For no good reason. And that's the thing about too much volume in a show. It's for no good reason. Past a certain point, it's not pleasurable anymore. It's pu- it's for punishment. And I don't know why any musician makes that choice because we all we all know the, what the volume knobs do. And we've all had the experience of like, you know, that was quieter but better. And if you're playing, if you're My Bloody Valentine or you're playing like super heavy metal, if you're in Earth or Sun O or whatever, like, yeah, turn it all the way up and and just and make me poo. Right? Because that goes <laughs> along with your music. It's make me poo music. But that's not what Prince's music is. I don't know. I'll never know. I'll never have the chance to ask him now. Um, and he didn't care, right? Uh, but that was, you know, that was of all the, because I've seen him a few times and every one of them, right? You're lucky. You feel lucky to be there. Oh, yeah. But but that was one where it was, uh, maybe it was because I went in there with so many expectations that Prince was going to come out in a pair of ripped blue jeans, sit on a stool and play uh, the electric blues for two hours because I, I know he can. I would I would have paid well I didn't pay any money to see the show but I would have paid 1 billion dollars to see that. Um and maybe that's a thing maybe that's a thing I'm bringing to to uh, to my interaction with all musicians which is just like what's the simplest version of this can you show me can I, can you show me your influences and yourself in the in the simplest iteration of of what you know and i know that prince on a stool with an acoustic guitar could could rip us all apart and so everything that he adds on top of that every bit of show and i'm not talking about a stadium show i'm talking about in a scene like this yeah every little thing that he puts on top of that it feels like an unnecessary addition particularly past a certain point like a four-piece band that's really killer Absolutely. But a light show or any kind of any sort of outboard effect beyond that just starts to feel superfluous into shading into uh, shading into an insult almost like none of the, the uh, this was the type of show where the only people that were there were p- people that could get into this thing. You know what I mean? Like these tickets were not available to, to punters. Right. Everybody in there was a music business person. Mm. Or mu- and I don't, and I mean Seattle style, not, not like a bunch of managers, but like everybody from every band in the Northwest was there. Yeah. We don't need to be fooled. We don't need, <laughs> you don't need to, to blind us with like a light show. We've all seen a light show. That's what Marilyn Manson shows are. We're, we're, we're all here to, you know, to like worship at your altar, basically. Which, you know, which I continue to do. It's not like it changed my opinion about him at all. But, but anyway, somewhere floating out there, and I'm sure easily found, is this article I wrote about his show, which I've essentially recapitulated for everyone. But, yeah. I'll find it and I'll put it into the 
Oh, I don't know if you need to do that. Show notes. You don't think people <laughs> want to read it? Ah, okay. Oh, here it is right here. Yeah, there it Easy is. to find. What's the title of it? Prince, The Emperor's New Jams. Everyone loves Prince, but we deserve better at the Showbox by John Roderick. Tuesday, April 23rd, 2013 at 5.07 p.m. 2013? That's, Not that long ago. This says. Huh. All and right. This will well. be this, this, and the uh, the video will be at 5x5.tv slash roadwork slash 26. We would like to thank Wealthfront.com. Wealthfront is, is exactly, in my opinion, the, the perfect place to invest. I'll tell you why. Because my philosophy of investment, which they fully embrace, is, uh, is that the, the, the regular human being should not have to be a master of the stock market. They should not master and research every single index fund and follow everything every single day and, and stress out about it. Wealthfront has people that will do that for you. In fact, they have really smart algorithms. They brought together some of the best computer scientists to build these algorithms, working with some of the best and brightest financial advisors. And what they do is they make it possible for you to invest some money without having to worry about it. And you don't have to invest a lot of money. People like, right, I don't have a million bucks, so I can't really get access to this. And that's the way that it used to be. Historically, you would need to invest at least a million dollars to even get the attention of a, re- a good financial advisor or, or a wealth management professional, professional person. I went and, uh, and, and tried to invest. This was a few years ago. And they just looked at me like, uh, you know, why don't you go make like uh, an account on an online brokerage and just go get some index funds. I'm like, well, why? And like, you don't really have enough for us to talk to you about. And that kind of sucked. Well, if you have 500 bucks, you can get started with a long-term investment account at Wealthfront. And they're going to take care of you. They're going to make sure that uh, they save you money on your taxes and that your investment grows. That's the whole point. And here's the deal. Go to wealthfront.com slash five by five. They'll manage your first $15,000 entirely free of charge for life. That means you'll never pay commissions ever. There are no hidden fees and you won't pay any management fees to have that first 15K invested. Normally, it's only 10K with this promotion, 15K. So go check it out. Great way to invest. Wealthfront.com slash 5 by 5 now, everyone realizes that when you write an article for a local alternative paper, you do not title it yourself, right? That's a thing that, <clears throat> that's a thing that editors, that's a... You did not pick the title Prince, colon, The Emperor's <laughs> New Jams. <laughs> no, no, that's, you know, editors consider the title of the article to be their purview, <laughs> and they uh, sometimes get it right, other times uh, they get it, they get, they get close. Sometimes they say the emperor's new jams. Um, I think that every that every writer, if it were up to them, would title the article with a line from the article. Yeah, but that's not how editors think. I I, I, I am enjoying just sort of skimming this article. I'm going to have to read it after because hearing you speak for the years that I have since. Uh, listening to you with Merlin and then meeting you a few times and then doing this show. I can hear this very much in your <laughs> in your voice, and it's mm-hmm. great. 
The effect was like that of a giant celebrity cruise ship pulling into a small Caribbean port town and unloading 2,000 tourists for a half-day excursion. Oh! Oh! From the perspective of those aboard the ship, which is to say from within Prince's mind, gaudy volume and epileptic lights seem like normal party fun, but to the people on shore it reads as an invasion of vulgarity. Put, oh, an- put another way... We climbed into bed with a very attractive and sexy person, and all of a sudden he started making all these sex faces and wolf noises, humping us and shit. Uh, oh no, uh, this is awful. <laughs> it's in the show notes. I'm really a bad, bad person. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's not the good part of the article. Even there, it gets it gets better. So, you know one of, <laughs> one of the things that I. <laughs> One of the ways in which I knew that I had developed as a writer was when I felt like I wrote basically how I talk. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, I'm a writer only, only in the sense that I am also a talker, you know, that, that, that the two personalities aren't, aren't distinct from one another. I'm never probably going to write a, biography of Otto von Bismarck because if I did it would you know I would say things like in my own voice which is not a I mean maybe I should write a autobiography or write a biography of Otto von Bismarck where I where I discuss him in context of being a, a gaudy cruise ship mm-hmm. but um <laughs> But yeah, that was now don't just sit there and read the article. No, I'm not. I'm I'm going to save it. I may print it. All right. Uh but I you know, I I enjoy doing rock criticism from the from the perspective of a rock musician. I I I sometimes feel that because I am a because I am a small potatoes rock musician that it's a little bit out a little bit above my pay grade to be commenting on, on Prince. Right. Well, but I don't, I don't know about that, but you know, I'm not 22, right? I, I, uh, with, with, with age comes a certain amount of a certain broader perspective where you can say like, yeah, it's Prince. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know, but, but, uh, but kill your idols, right? Kill your idols. Anyway, uh, rest in, <laughs> rest in peace, Prince. I'm, yeah. Sorry that I I'm sorry that that my editor said Emperor's new jams. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty pretty corny, but um yeah. So how are you, Dan? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Yeah. Good, good, good. A lot of you know a lot of stuff in the news, a lot of a uh, lot of a lot of feelings out in the world. Yep. I'm wearing a purple shirt today. Yeah. My uh my son is uh trying to visualize a world where John Roderick is president. Yeah. And we've been talking a lot about that. Um, and I Twitter, I tweeted about it. Uh, when, after he said that he said, I, I want to, I, I should make sure I get it. Cause when I, when I tweet things that he says, I'm try, I'm tweeting them verbatim. Uh-huh. And the way that he said it was very, I'm scrolling through all these old tweets because I just want to get it right. He said, what if John Roderick were to become president? Mm. And he's very interested in the current election. And uh, I saw your tweet about uh, where you, I guess, um, 
Bernie Sanders was uh, speaking in Seattle. Yep. And you sort of a- introed him and emceed him. So I was I was watching this video, and anytime I play anything on my phone, both of my kids will swarm over to me. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Right. And uh, most of the time, it's not. You know, it's some kind of news video or tech video or some, you know, un- unboxing a new thing. And they're not very interested in that. But this one, my son looks, he's eight, and he says, is that John Roderick? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, wow. He said, and he's standing up there with that other guy. Huh. And I said, well, the other guy, that's Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and uh, he's like, oh, he's running for president, right? And I said, yeah. He said, what if John Roderick were to become president? Uh, well, and I yeah. said, "What? What if? Yeah, what if? Is yeah." Right. And so I would, I would like to. You were making, uh, you made some very interesting comments about Bernie Sanders. I, w- I don't know. Can we, can we talk about that on this show? Is this? Is yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's the one of the one of the foundational uh, arguments for this show is that there were, despite having a show where I often talked to Merlin Mann for an hour and a half. Every week, there were so many things uh, that Merlin didn't want to talk about, namely sex, politics, and religion. <laughs> and that those have become the foundations of this show. Sure. You, you want to talk about sex, <laughs> politics, and religion. Almost exclusively. And I, and I understand completely why Merlin doesn't want to talk about those things. So he and I have managed to have almost 200 episodes where we very seldom talk about any one of those three things. So if we want to talk about politics on this show, he absolutely can. Yeah. So I introduced Bernie at that rally in August of last year, pretty, pretty early on in his surge, right? He, he seemed like, he seemed like a candidate that was like, really this, like this kook from the Northeast is running for president. Sure. And then he started to, he started to connect with people. He started to surge and it was evident that like oh my god this is uh this is a real candidacy and he is a real he's a a real progressive in a way that he's saying all these things that that there has not been a national figure with the exception of like elizabeth warren who is who truly i think is one of the great american politicians but here's here is somebody saying these things you know when ralph nader said them uh, in 1988, uh, or 1990, whenever, 1992, 2000, 2000, 2000, Jesus. <laughs> uh, you know, Ralph Nader is so down tempo. He's such, he's like almost, um, He's almost undead, you know, like yeah. Ralph Nader is just so brr, there's no light in his eyes. <laughs> but here was this guy that was like wagging his finger in the air and saying these wonderful things that we all understood to be true. Like the banks are, are creating a, the banks have created a degree of wealth inequality that is criminal, historically criminal and untenable over the long term, maybe untenable even over the short term, but like as a product of the de- deregulation of America that began during the Reagan era and continued at a great pace, both through the Clinton 
and Bush administrations, where it's just like, oh, business doesn't need oversight. That's government overreach. Goddamn liberals trying to pass their nanny state laws. Business takes care of itself. You know, capitalism is a natural system and it just it absolutely just flushes out the bad because the market decide all this kind of stuff. All this like religion of of capitalism. And it's and we've created a world where yeah, uh, you know what happens when you have unregulated banks when when banks can also get into speculation on their own, you know, that banks can can also try to play the market, mm. can game the market. What you get is unbridled greed, total concentration of wealth, complete lack of morality. The market is not a pure animal. The market is not a natural system. It is not a thing that needs to be deregulated. It's a thing that needs to be passionately regulated, just as the airlines need to be regulated, just as all of these monsters need to be regulated. And honestly, yes. The government is bad. Oh, it's bad. It's bad at regulating things. <laughs> it's bad. And when you let the government regulate, oh, it, it always turns bad because some bureaucrat is blah, standing in the way of progress. Oh, terrible government. It's so inefficient. Yes, all of those things are true. And yet, thank God. Thank God for it. And to, you know, and there's a balance to strike, right? We don't want too much regulation. You want the right amount, but deciding where that line is and where the right amount of regulation is, is, is so key. And if we take as an article of faith, that regulation is bad. We are making a tremendous mistake. Regulation is not bad. It is awesome. It's excellent. We just need to find the right line. And we absolutely need to try and streamline the, the processes but but at whatever point Reagan and even Clinton, uh, Clinton original Clinton, Dad Clinton, <laughs> to whatever degree that they that they that Reagan promoted and Clinton signed on to the 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 idea that government regulation in and of itself is a bad thing, they we're doing a criminal disservice to us. But and it seems so here, like that's a very popular perspective and oh, very popular point of view. It's a popular perspective because people are fucking idiots. <laughs> you know? It's a popular perspective because somebody said it and said it loudly enough that all the people in the world are like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Government is, yeah, government is bad. I went to the DMV one time and the woman was rude to me. So, uh, therefore, uh, government regulation's bad. People are fucking morons. Like government regulation is what government is for and it protects us from, I mean, government regulation and, you know, and frankly, organized labor are what, ha, what keeps us from having eight-year-olds working in coal mines for the love of God. And if you look through, if you look through just the last hundred years, every single, every single innovation in terms of more rights for workers, less exploitation for workers. Business each time said that this was the death of business. If we, you know, if we don't have children working in, uh, in the garment district, then the garment district is going to fail and that's going to undermine the U S economy, right? If we have a 40 hour work week, 
that's going to be the death of business. Mm-hmm. If we have a $15 an hour minimum wage, that's going to be the death of business. It's always the death of business. Business is so business sits and clutches its handkerchief and cries crocodile tears. Business is worse than European soccer players. Business is constantly falling on the ground and pretending that its shin is hurt because it is the most theatrical and hysterical part of public life. Oh, oh, poor business. It's, oh, it's got some regulation. Oh no, the economy. And it's just, it's, (laughs) it's part of the, it's, it's part of this game. And if you buy it, if you buy that, that business unregulated is healthy, you are buying, you're buying this self-serving drama from, well, from a sector of the economy that has collected like an, a, an overwhelming percentage of our shared wealth, it has collected unto itself. And it's done that exactly because we don't regulate them strongly enough. Now, the, so here comes Bernie Sanders and he's saying eh, versions of that. He's certainly recognizing that, that business has gone, that business is, has taken an outsized role and that the, and that there is this, um, I think silent, possibly silent majority, but certainly silent, uh, a, a large minority of people that also recognize that like for all the years, Dan, that we were, that we were in our teens and twenties mm-hmm. <clears throat> post Reagan, where the word liberal became a swear word. All the politician had to say was the word liberal. And you understood immediately that it was some kind of Robert Maplethorpe who was, who was like sticking the American flag up his butt. Like that's what liberals were. Liberals were awful. Liberals wanted to give free money to people who were living in public housing. So they didn't have to work and they all got big screen TVs. Liberals wanted to, you know, liberals wanted to choke business with our big greedy talon like liberal hands. And for the last 25 years in our national conversation, like the word liberal is all you needed to say. And people would go, ugh, liberal. Ugh. And so the Democrats abandoned the word liberal and they were like, oh no, we're not liberal. We're, uh, you know, we're moderates or we're, uh, you know, neoliberals or what, you know, they had all these, all these like way code words, ways to get around this terrible L word. But Bernie Sanders is connecting with this, with this mass of people in America. who are like, what? No, I'm a liberal. Yeah, I always was. Uh, This is awful. It's awful to deregulate all of these industries and let them just tear through national life. Like the, like the raw meat that we are. So here he is, he's saying these things and I'm just like, thank God. And I, I introduced him at that event. I was, and I meant every word I said, and I was thrilled by his candidacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as time went on, his rhetoric, I don't think it necessarily turned a corner. I think he always believed what he, what he became more and more empowered to say which was not that he wants to regulate the banks, but that he wants to break up the banks. And at that point, you're talking about something different than liberalism or like you're talking about something different than 
changing the civil society that we have built over 20 or 200 years. You're talking about the sort of familiar refrain of revolution. And we use the word revolution in a lot of different ways. You know, and there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley that say every new app that counts the number of, of fucking, uh, Snapchat likes you got last week is a revolution in apps. But like when you talk about revolution, whatever revolution it would require that we break up the banks. Um, that's like, that's a heavy call mm. and I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely like, I don't, I, I would not scoff at the idea of breaking up the banks, but we do not have a, we do not have the mandate right now. And like we're, he's activating a lot of students and a lot of us that have never felt like there was a national. I mean, and when I say students, I like, there are a lot, there are a lot of people right now in our popular culture that want to talk about ageism as if it's a real thing. Like if, as if it matters, like we should have, 25 year olds on the board of directors of companies and the fact that we don't, it's because of ageism, but, but young people are idiots and we've always known it, right? I mean, if you're 25, you don't know anything. True. And if you think you do know something, that's only because you don't know enough to know how little, you know, that's the absolute condition. It's the precondition of being 25. Yes. Of course you think you are an equal partner in, like adult life. Of course you think that, but you're not because you don't know anything yet. You don't have the emotional maturity. You don't, you know, you're young. That's wonderful. Go learn, read and, and have sex with one another. And, you know, and like have fun, be poor, live in a small apartment. That's what you're meant to do right now. It is not to join public life as an equal partner with, with adults who have, been alive for a long time and have seen that compromises are necessary, have seen that it is not, you know, it's the, it's the, it's what it boils down to Dan is anyone who ever says all we need to do is Mm. immediately. I stop listening or I don't, it's not that I stop listening. I just sit back in the chair and go, okay, tell us what all we need to do because there's never a problem that can be solved by somebody saying all we need to do is, and I know it's tantalizing to think that there are, that think that that's it. All we need to do is break up the banks. All we need to do is make everybody equal. All we need to do is this or that. And it's like, that is a character of both radical liberals and reactionary conservatives to believe that the solution is simple. And that's why those popular movements are popular. The conservatives say, all we need to do is build a, build a wall across the, Southern border and the liberals say all we need to do is break up the banks. And when I say conservatives and liberals, I mean reactionaries and radicals, but I have come uh, through my long years to a, to the conclusion that radicals are, are as untrustworthy as reactionaries. They are as unreflective and as dangerous to, to public life as reactionaries because they're uncompromising because they're, because they believe in ideological purity and they believe that the way to create a 
a perfect society or a better society is to just force reform on people that do not want those reforms, right? It's where it's not a situation where we're trying to compromise with people that believe that uh, God made the earth in seven days. You know, we're not trying to compromise with people who genuinely believe in, in free market economics, like genuinely and intellectually conclude that that's the, that the, the market should be free. Right. I mean, there, you, you can differ with those people, but you can, you can't say that they're dumb, right. Or that they haven't thought about it, but reactionaries, you know, reactionaries want Bernie Sanders into the presidency so that we can just make this sweeping change, this revolution where all of a sudden the 50% of the population that doesn't agree just gets their noses pushed down into the mud and we we put our liberalism into their butts mm-hmm. and then they just have to suck it. And that's what the conservatives have been doing for the last however long since they've controlled the Congress and since the libertarians came in with their Tea Party uh, lunacy and the conservatives have said, we're shutting down Congress. We've made Congress a completely ineffectual body that is causing tremendous destruction both to the United States and also our confidence in ourselves, our confidence in democracy right now. But the, the, the response to that is not to just flip the tables and have liberalism be the, or have, I'm sorry, progressivism be the scimitar that counteracts this radicalism. I'm sorry, reactionaryism. God, I always get those two confused because if you, if you think of politics, if you think of political orientation as a circle, yeah, where at the North pole, you have complete moderation, complete like bipartisan moderation as a kind of unachievable goal. And then you go around to the left side and it's, you know, moderate liberalism and then then, uh, passionate liberalism, extreme liberalism all the way to radicalism. And then where does radicalism connect at its most extreme? It, it, It absolutely shoulders right up to reactionaryism. And I've heard from more self-identified leftists that uh, I've heard the exact same conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton that I hear from like Donald Trump lunatic right. uh, Tea Party people, right? They, they're saying the exact same thing. At, at, you're just I, uh, oscillating between these two poles and it, and it, you know, and the differences between those two sides are all sort of in the social sphere Right. There's on one side, there are like intersectional uh, gender fluid leftists. And on the other side, there are people that believe that all, uh, you know, that all but the white race should be eliminated from the United States. But the way that they are proposing to accomplish their their two goals are almost identical, which is just to silence and dismiss any any sort of argument and and basically rule the other side. So the, the, the only people that ever really get, get into power who say all we need to do is, is blank are uh, dictators. That is what a dictator says. Hmm. All we need to do is blank. It's a, it is fundamentally a dictatorship 
And for Bernie Sanders to achieve his goals would require that Bernie Sanders be in some ways a dictator, which we which can't happen in America. So therefore, Bernie Sanders cannot achieve his goals. And I was I was thrilled about him at the beginning because I felt like if he can lay out a plan to accomplish these things that he's saying, my God, that would be transformative. I would support that. I would march in the streets. I would go to work for his administration. Like, let's hear the plan. And as time went on, the plan was just let's mobilize an army of of college students and fill their heads with uh, with the idea that politics is simple and all we need to do is you know it's this it's a ouroboros of like all we need to do is organize and once we're organized all we need to do is organize and either everyone will get on board and if they don't then the people that don't are on the wrong side of history and we're gonna i don't know what crush them uh well i mean ultimately for force them somehow force them by achieving a majority and then forcing rather than achieving a majority and then negotiating and that's ideological purity and i'm and i understand its appeal i really do but it's not it's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of reflection on what that actually would mean what what it would practically mean and if you can't talk about what it practically means, if you don't have a plan for the practicality of implementing even your small policy, like you're going to show up one day, you got it all written down, and there's going to be somebody sitting on the other side of the aisle or sitting at a desk, and you're going to walk up to them and say, here's the plan, and they're going to say, no thanks. And then what? You know, Then what do you do? Get in their face? I mean, you can't. You got to have a plan. Are you, so, so are you saying you don't think he has one? No, I don't think he has one. I mean, his plan is based on numbers that aren't real. His plan is based on, on a fantasy, right? It's, it's the, if you say, if we, if you say all we need to do is get 60% of America to agree. I mean, this is the, this is the same thing that the school boards in Pennsylvania. All we need to do is, is galvanize the 60% of America that believe that the, the, the Bible is the word of God or the, the Bible is the unerring word of God. And you go, well, there aren't 60% of the people that believe that. And they say, well, I think you're wrong. And you're like, no, I mean, demonstrably there aren't 60% of the world, uh, the people that think that. And they're like, well, we're going to pass the laws as though there were. Hmm. And it's the same with Bernie Sanders, right? There's the plan requires that there, that what is true, not be true. And if that were so, if what is true were not true, then yes, that would be an amazing plan. If, you know, if people that believed in the free market and believed that the Bible is the unerring word of God and believed that government uh, regulation is the, the worst of all evils, I mean, if all those people just weren't who they are or if they were 30% instead of 50%, then yeah, Bernie Sanders has an amazing plan. But he, but the plan as stated does not account for reality. And everybody says, oh, Hillary Clinton is a compromiser and enslaved to business and all that stuff. And that's hyperbole. You know, Hillary Clinton is absolutely a 
creature of the institutional Democratic Party. She's a mainstream politician. But mm-hmm. politician is not a bad word any more than liberal is a bad word. And mainstream isn't a bad word when you're talking about politics. You know, mainstream is how you actually get a a majority and you actually get a way and you have a plan that actually is plausible, right? Obama's health care plan is not what any liberal would actually have chosen. It's not anywhere close to what would actually be great for this country. I mean, you watch it, you watch him push that thing through and you're like, Oh man, this is just a compromised position. It's just, it's not, I mean, have you seen what they do in Finland? Come on, America. (laughs) But that's not what he could get past. And so the choice is ideological purity where you get nothing or figure out a compromise and you get a, you get Obamacare, which is better than what we had before. And I know that's tough for people to swallow. Uh, It's particularly tough for people. People who read Chomsky and loved it or who read Howard Zinn and were like, that explains everything. It's very hard to to accept that in America, you're never going to have a leftist revolution. And if you try to have one. You know, uh, does anybody seriously believe that there should be an armed revolution in America, though, you know. If you do, I mean, honestly, I lay in bed at night and I think about if the conservatives rose up and tried to have an armed revolution in America, which they think about all the time, too. Mm -hmm. I think about that. I think about the army of country ass uh, tea partiers that's coming over the Cascade Mountains, flying their Confederate flags with Ted Nugent at the head of their army. (laughs) I think about them coming and I think about the tremendous glee I would have manning a 50 caliber machine gun at Snoqualmie Pass, right? Because that's a that's a that's a fantasy that that's a male fantasy, right? And it's a and it's what it's one of the things that makes being a man fun. You sit and imagine your enemies coming over the pass and you engage them in battle. It's just, it's absolute. I think about it when I go to bed at night, I think about putting Donald Rumsfeld in a, in a shipping container in the desert. I can't help myself, but I don't actually believe that that is. I don't believe that defeating that army in the past is going to solve America's problems. And I certainly don't believe in mounting a, army of liberals and going over that past trying to destroy the conservatives in their homes so uh, so minus an armed revolution what exactly kind of revolution are we talking about and it's the and it's the classic error of believing that if you can educate people they're going to you know if you can go into jim baker's church and stand up there and explain why um explain why they well, like all, why all bathrooms should be gender neutral that the Jim Baker church members are going to change their minds. Right. You know, all bathrooms should be gender neutral. And eventually that law will pass when a majority of people, which is to say 51% or 52% are convinced, but you're not going to go, you're not going to take that battle to the school board of Pennsylvania and 
make it so eloquently that that they you know that they change their minds and you don't need a majority of 75%, you know, you need 52%, but but you need a majority and the way to get it is not to is not ideological purity. It never is. And I, and I learned this Dan running for office here in Seattle and I did not get endorsed. I mean the election was the the primary election was down to what the newspaper the stranger the the person that they endorsed. Mm-hmm. And they did not endorse me. They endorsed my opponent and they endorsed my opponent because he ticked all the boxes of ideological purity. He did not he you could tell he would not waver in defense of the principles that he believed in. And the suspicion was was that I didn't that my principles were not as um dependable you know that i would consider things and make decisions based on the evidence in front of me and i did not believe that all real estate developers were in service to general dynamics or in service to like the big money banks and the big money blah 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 blah, blah. you know and i didn't believe it and so therefore i wasn't trustworthy and therefore I didn't earn their endorsement and therefore I lost in the primary and, and seeing, and then that guy, the ideological purity guy, of course, lost to the incumbent who is a sort of vaguely conservative, moderate compromiser. And you look at politics in Seattle and it's like, Oh, there's two, everybody here is a liberal. So there are two sides to that. There are the, there are the radicals who believe that, all that matter are their principles and they will, they'll plant a flag in the ground and they'll defend that flag like Custer at little Bighorn until the last man is dead rather than move the flag. And those, those principled flags are, you know, there, there are innumerable flags that they'll plant and say, this is the truth. This is the light. This is the glory and we will not compromise in defense of mother earth. Hmm. And then you've got the compromisers, but who are also liberal who are like, well, let's talk to the guy and we'll talk to the other guy and we'll try and get some consensus. And, and they make the classic error too, of thinking that consensus is all that matters. And they spend all this time trying to get, Oh, consensus, consensus, and everything gets watered down. No progress is made because by the time you get complete consensus, you have a thing so defanged, it can make no change. And so these are your two poles. You got consensus and you've got radicalism and neither, you know, and uh, there are flaws in both camps, but you try and get somebody into office in Seattle and they're going to be from one of those camps. You're never going to find somebody that's like, sometimes you need to be a little bit radical. Sometimes you need to force force a piece of legislation through and you need to do it by any means necessary. But a lot of the time you got to, you got a horse trade, you got to buy and sell. Maybe you force your thing through and then you let you give the other guy one. Or maybe, you know, you like it's politics. So I, I lost that election. And what I, what I also did was lose a lot of respect for, for people that actually share my 
share my convictions. Like I lost respect for organized radicalism, progressivism as a ideology, because although I agree the methods that are practiced and espoused by that, that segment that share my values, I do not share their, I do not share their methods. I do not share their, their ideological conviction. I mean, I, and it's, Part of the reason why I don't go boo-hoo-hoo in public about Prince. Because it's like, give me a break. Are you seriously that distraught about it or are you making a performance? Do you seriously believe that that uh, people that believe in free market capitalism should be, what, put in camps? Like, you should, we should march into their, their uh, offices like the like the revolutionaries in Dr. Zhivago and put everybody out on the street, walk into the, to the really nice apartments and, and throw up wallboard. And suddenly there are 11 families living in there instead of one. Hmm. Like that's, that may be appealing to you, but you're talking about a dictatorial revolution, not, not a revolution of, you know, not a, not a golden one, not a glorious one. And I can't, I mean, the American Revolution, if that's your model, show me another American Revolution. Like, we got so fucking lucky, and it's because we had, we had really unique circumstances. Show me another American Revolution. You know what happened in the French Revolution that was modeled absolutely on the American Revolution? I can point to a lot of revolutions in the last 200 years. Show me another one that had the results of the American revolution. So all these people that quote Thomas Jefferson and say that the tree of Liberty has to be fertilized with the blood of Patriots who believe that their revolution is equivalent to the American revolution are just wrong. Their equivalent, their revolution is going to be closer to Pol Pot's revolution. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Did I just elicit a, a grunt? I, think you're, I think that you're going a, a little too far with that. <laughs> because I'm a radical. <laughs> I mean, tell me, though. Show me a revolution in the 20th century that, that didn't produce a dictatorship. And, and, and people say, oh, the Velvet Revolution in the Czech Republic. Well, that's not. That's, that wasn't a revolution. That was a the Soviet Union collapsed and they managed to get Vaclav Havel into the presidency instead of some member of the party because Vaclav Havel had spent 40 years making himself a hero to the Czechs and because they're a very poetic nation. They're full of, they're full of people that like read poetry for fun, that write plays (laughs) for fun. But that was not a revolution. And frankly, neither was the, what, what happened in Romania. Like they killed, they killed Ceausescu and then the, the people that took over the government were basically the guys that were in the back office. Uh, they were the, the exact same people. Like none of those were revolutions really, but like armed overflow, uh, I'm sorry, armed overthrow of, of a, of a government. Show me one in history. That is that measures up to the American Revolution. Like the American Revolution is not the model because it was 
because those, those circumstances were absolutely unique. So you can't, you can't say that you can ever duplicate it. And, and frankly, I believe it's still ongoing and that, and that's why I support the, the current American democracy with all of its flaws and warts and ugliness. Like this is the system that we should reform, but by, but in reforming, we should support and anybody that says that a democracy is irrevocably broken is just they're they endanger us, frankly, because this is still like it's still the grand experiment. the 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 system of government in the Netherlands or the system of government in in uh, Germany right now they work very efficiently. They're very plausible, but they're not going to work in America. And we are still the experiment. We're the one that everybody's watching and we're doing a shit poor job of it right now. But, but we should redouble our efforts to, to ensure that this, that this version, this pluralistic and ungainly version of democracy not just survive but evolve and thrive i don't want a revolution i want to i want to support this i want america 